If you have uh, elementary age kids or below, we'd love for you to be a part of our <clears throat> Vine Kids time. Um, then go right out these side doors. Likewise, if you have a middle school age kiddo, we'd love for you to be a part of what we have going on with our middle school kids. They are meeting back there in our kind of newly revamped back 40. We'd love for you to be a part of that. So for those of you that are here for the first time, again, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. You are coming in a really unique kind of place. We have spent two years and two months studying every verse and every word in the Gospel of John. 21 chapters, 879 verses, 15,635 words, and we have been through all of them over two years and two months. 85 individual messages, and I looked last night, mine alone, not even with Brandon, I wrote 480 pages of stuff over the Gospel of John, right? So it has been this incredible journey for us that we started. Uh, last February, two Februarys ago, we stepped into this, not really having an ending place in mind, but just wanted to follow the track of the gospel. And as you've gone with us, what we've learned is, along the way, is that John's entire gospel focus is that we would know that Jesus is in fact God. Remember, John is not interested in telling this sort of historicity of the life of Christ. He's not interested in us knowing the sort of biological markers or the physiological markers of Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is the incarnation. Every story, every miracle, every encounter is pointing to Jesus as God's son, God in the flesh. And so we looked and examined the gospel in that Context. It's what makes John's gospel incredibly different. And so this journey that we've been on over all these kind of years and all these weeks and all those things that we've explored, it's really amazing to make it to the other end, to make it to the other side. But what's really powerful about a journey like this is when you stop where you've, when you kind of made it to the end and you look back and you survey where you've come from how much ground you've covered, the valleys, the, the canyons, the mountains, the things you passed along the way, right? That's what makes a journey so amazing. It's not that you can make it to the other side and say, hey, we made it from LA to New York, look what we did, but it's all the stops that you made along the way. It's the places that you stopped in Kansas to see the world's largest ball of twine and all those kind of places that you looked and you did things as a family and the, the fights and the non-fights and the good times and all those things that happen to make a journey a journey. And the Gospel of John is that for us. We start with this idea that, that you know, God is the creator of the universe and that Jesus is in fact God and we make it to that marker at the end where that is brought to its fulfillment through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you remember last week, Brandon wrapped all this up in chapter 21 when Jesus reinstates Peter, right? All of Peter's shame and all of Peter's failure and all the ways that he had denied Christ, all those things, Jesus invites him back into essentially ministry. He reinstates his purpose and the church at this point in time is going to begin. And John ends with sort of this movement to reinstate Peter and the church is going to happen. That's kind of where we are. And so John just sort of ends kind of spilling into this incredible movement that's going to bring about the church as Peter understands his true calling and eventually will become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and of course the rock upon which Jesus will build the entire church. So we've been from point A all the way down to the very end, and for the next few weeks, we're going to stop and we're going to survey where we've come from. 
We're going to look back over some milestones. And basically what I've kind of carved out is thinking about what have we learned about Jesus along the way? So there's been a lot of things we've learned about Christ, right? But I've narrowed down to four things that I think are incredibly important for us to just sort of stop and look at and say, this is what we have learned about who Jesus is or about Jesus through this journey. Hopefully these aren't going to be things that are like brand new to you. They're going to hopefully be really theological, true perspectives that we're going to be able to chase throughout scripture. But they're things that John has helped shape in terms of our ability to see them. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at those, and then we're going to begin a whole bunch of new things. But, but for these next four weeks, we're going to survey the land that we have crossed, and we're going to talk about things that we have learned about Jesus. And we're going to start that process this morning by talking about the very first thing, and one of the most important things that we've learned about Christ through this two-year journey of the Gospel of John, and that is this, that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you're sitting here and you're saying, well, we've known that, right? That was pretty evident. It's true. It is evident. But we've got to understand as we look and understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that it changes our paradigms to understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. All right? So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to explore Jesus, the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. So in really, in order to understand this, you kind of got to grasp the theological, the history theological question behind the Messiah. You have to understand that the Messiah is the connective tissue between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Messiah is the linchpin that holds all of the sort of redemptive history that's talked about and foretold in the Old Testament to the empty tomb in the New Testament. The Messiah is the one who bridges the gap because if Jesus was not the Messiah, then we are still longing and waiting like the Jews of today. But what is even more important is that we are still under Old Testament law. We are hopeless. So if Jesus himself is not the promised Messiah, the one that was foretold and prophesied about in all the Old Testament, all those scriptures, everything leads up to him breaking into humanity, right? If Jesus is not the promised one, then we are stuck in a place of longing still. From a theological perspective, the Messiah was a promise. The Messiah was more than just a idea. The Messiah was a promise for an entire people. They believed that God was going to bring about real, true change through the Messiah. Now, if you remember, the longing the Jews had for the Messiah was really built around politics. So the Jews, as we know, were under Roman rule. They were being occupied. They were a people that were not free on their own, even though they may try and tell you that they were. They were not. They were occupied by the Romans. They had been a great nation in the past. God had established them when he called Abraham to follow him and he had given them this land and he had given them this, this kind of picture of prominence and power. And the Jews were a people that were, well, they were kind of in the middle of mediocrity and they lived back and forth between trusting the Lord and following themselves. And there's this whole Old Testament picture of the Jews kind of in this crazy mix of belief and unbelief all the time. And because of that unbelief, they were oftentimes thrown into captivity, they were overthrown, they had lands conquered, they were scattered all over the place. But under all of that was the belief that God was going to deliver them from all of this one day. And after King David, and they were scattered across the universe when the, when the Assyrian Empire fell, or when the Assyrians came in and took out the north, Babylonians came in and took out the south, they believed that God was one day going to rise them up again through this Messiah. The Messiah is foretold all through uh, Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. 
And they believed the Messiah was going to do that. They had this deep longing. But their longing was rooted in the idea that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to reestablish them as a political power. He was going to kick the Romans out. He was going to rule like King David. He was going to make him a prominent nation. They would wipe out everybody again, and they would be great. That's what the people longed for. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. We've talked about this when we talk about Palm Sunday, right? When Jesus comes riding into town on that Sunday, just a week from today on our church calendar, he's going to come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey as the people laid down palm branches, proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, save us, save us. Because they believe at this point in time that this Jesus might be the Messiah that was going to come and reestablish them as a power. But that kind of Messiah king comes riding in on what? A stallion, not a baby donkey. The people were longing and hungry to be delivered into something great politically. Now we know the reality of the kind of Messiah that Jesus came as, right? Very different. So the idea of Jesus as the Messiah is this idea of anointing, okay? So I know we've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. But the word Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Everybody sort of knows that. Like, his middle name is not Marvin, right? Like, Jesus, Marvin, Christ. Like, Christ is a title. It's a Greek word, Christos, which means anointed. It's kind of the, uh, the comparative word with the Hebrew word, Mashiach, which is anointed. And the idea of anointed is one that carries one of special purpose or power. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, kings were anointed by God. Instead of putting a crown upon their heads, they were anointed by a prophet. They would put oil on their heads to say, God has set you apart for a holy purpose. And although Jesus had a prophetic and a priestly role, he had the role of a king. And that role is elevated in scripture. If you remember in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come from the east and they lay gifts right at the baby Jesus because he is the newborn king, right? Remember all that. Remember in Luke chapter four where he goes into the temple and they hand the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus walks up in front of all the Pharisees and Sadducees and he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61 where he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, right? He has anointed me, right, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to release those from bondage. He rolls the scroll up and he hands it back and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in me reading it. We know that as Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, we just talked about that, that expression of kingliness. We know that as he stands before Pilate, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Luke records him saying, it is as you say. All that to say this, that the role of the Messiah was a longing for a king. The expectations the Jewish people had was that this king was going to come in and fulfill our desires and our needs. We want to be a great nation. We want to be established. Meet our needs. But we know that Jesus, Messiah, right, came in for a wholly different purpose. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What happens when the Messiah doesn't meet our needs? Understanding fully what Jesus came to do will set us truly Free. So we're going to go back to John chapter 15 for a few minutes this morning, and we're going to examine what Jesus the Messiah really came to do, and how that should turn our paradigms of understanding our relationship with Jesus upside down. Because Jesus is the promised one. He is the one that connects the Old Testament promise to the New Testament reality. He is the very truth 
of redemptive history. So let's take a moment. I want you to turn over to uh, chapter 15 of the Gospel of John as we're going to look at what the role of the Messiah has done and how that changes us. And uh, before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Lord, I know that's a lot of just talking and background history to get to one singular point, which is this. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What does it mean that he is the anointed one, that he is the king? What does it mean that he's supposed to be the king of our lives? Lord, what does it mean that he's supposed to rule my heart? Lord, I pray this morning that as we open your word and we we go back to a place where we've been before, that we'll be reminded of how desperately we need you. That when our longings and desires are rooted in selfishness, you turn them upside down by reminding us our desperate need for you. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask for a few minutes that the Lord would teach your heart. Just ask the Lord would teach you something new. I don't know what that is. I don't necessarily think it matters. I just want you to ask the Lord to teach you whatever it is he wants you to know this morning. Lord, I'm grateful for this journey. Deeply grateful. Let's be a people that long for you. Take a moment again and just pray for someone beside you. Just as we do each week, be in the habit of praying for somebody else. Everything that unfolds here, of course, on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in them. He would reveal himself to them, even if you don't know their name. Just pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would just teach our hearts this morning as we open your word for a few moments. Remind us of your great and extravagant love for us and our deep and desperate need for you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. So hopefully a very familiar text. We're going to be in John 15, chapter 5. And our context of looking at these verses is going to be just that. That we learn from the gospel of John that Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And that we have these expectations, right? Like the Jewish people have these expectations, these things that we desire Jesus to do or to give us or to be for us, right? But there's a whole reality that sort of falls in a different realm of which what Jesus truly came to do and what he actually asks from us as his followers. So let's look at John chapter 15. We're going to look at five through eight this morning, which hopefully is familiar. And then we will... um, Unpack it a little bit together. So Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, for those who have been journeying with us for some time, of course you will remember, right, because you remember everything we've talked about over the two years, that we, in chapter 15, are in the middle of what we call the farewell discourse, right? That longest recorded piece of Jesus' teaching, the last one before he goes and sets the wheels of the crucifixion resurrection in motion. 
that moment between the Last Supper and when he is betrayed and handed over. Those few hours, John, that entire discourse, John like 15 through 17, all falls in there. And Jesus is telling very plainly his disciples that he is going to be with them no longer. He's actually telling them that where he's going, they also can't go. And the disciples are confused and they're sad and they don't get it. And they actually argue with Jesus. There's a little sliver in there where they're like, what do you mean? Wherever you go, we're going. And Jesus is like, no, you can't. Peter's like, no, we can Jesus is like, Peter, you can't. And so we get this picture, this farewell discourse where Jesus very plainly is working to comfort and empower his disciples for a life that does not physically include Jesus, like in his physical presence. And what we need to remember about John 15 is that these are actually words of comfort. Jesus had just told the disciples that he will no longer be with them, and where he is going, they cannot come. And he's actually using these words as words of comfort. And he used this incredibly important and vivid metaphor to do that. Now, a lot of that metaphor is going to be lost on us because we don't live in an agrarian society. We live in sort of an urban culture with cars and cell phones, right? But in those days, this sort of agriculture or agrarian connection would have been really visible. Vines and branches and shepherds and all these things, these metaphors would resonate. They would make real sense. So for us, we've got to kind of step back and think a little bit more about it. But for them, it would have been supernatural to have understood what Jesus' metaphor was saying. And he used this metaphor about vines and branches. And there's several things in there by which he describes the nature of who he is, and our, the nature of our relationship to him and how that should look. And it's incredibly profound and important for you and for me to understand. So Jesus, in this metaphor, calls himself, <coughs> excuse me, calls himself the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches, right? So what he does is he sets up this idea that I am sort of the life-giving peace to every believer. So I am a vine. I am the one by which you are attached to that gives very true life. Now, these are words of comfort because he has just told the disciples that he is leaving, but now he's telling them that even though I'm going, I'm still going to essentially be present in you, right? They're not going to get that yet, but this is what Jesus is laying out for them. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What we learn about this metaphor, what we learn about Jesus as the Messiah in this metaphor, are a couple of really important things. And the first one, the thing that we learn, and we talked about all through our John study, is that the vine, or that Jesus, gives life. So the truth about who Jesus is as the Messiah is that Jesus came to give life. And that apart from Jesus, there is no life. Now, if you think about the metaphor at its face, value, right? The vine is which that thing that supplies nutrients and life to its branches. If you take a branch and you break it away from the vine and you lay it on the ground, it dies. It has no ability to survive on its own. It's not connected to any source that gives life. And what John tells it, eventually the only thing it's good for is to be gathered up, taken to the fire, and burned. The vine is the source of true, real, abundant, and eternal life. What that tells us about Jesus the Messiah is that Jesus is the source and the only avenue for true, real, abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life in heaven. There is no other life aside from that. Now, you may draw a breath on this planet. You may be able to take up space on this planet. 
But the abundant, joy-filled, amazing life that God has created for you is not possible without Christ. And there is no promise of eternal life at all without Jesus. Period. I am the vine, and the vine gives life. And as humanity, we have created an entire worldview about how to find life outside of acknowledging that truth. The idea of pluralism, religious pluralism, is that concept that all roads lead to life. All roads lead to heaven. We've created a system by which we try and figure out whatever avenue or path they are, or that is, or that religion leads to, it all goes to the same place. The truth is, Scripture teaches us something completely and totally different. Scripture teaches us that true life only comes through the vine, through Christ. We talked about this extensively in John 6, where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And John, and John tells us that he is the one that even draws them. So we learn about the vine, or Jesus the Messiah, is that he came to give life. I literally believe that the majority, well, I'll take that back, a large portion of our churches are filled with people that we would not describe, and even in our own context at times, as being full of life. Because we can go to church our whole lives. You can be very religious and not be connected to Christ and therefore be dead. You can show up every time we open the doors here. You can come to everything that we ever do. You can get a t-shirt. We can teach you the handshake. You can eat a donut. You can take communion. You can do all of those things and never be connected to Christ and therefore be dead. At some point in time, we have to understand that true life comes from being completely and totally connected to Christ. But the reality for most of us is that we want to be close enough to be connected to Christ, but not actually have to physically or spiritually attach ourselves to him. Because when we do, everything changes. We want to be close enough to the vine to try and to siphon off a little bit of joy in life. But if we connect ourselves or if we allow ourselves to be connected to the vine, and it turns everything upside down. But true life, abundant life, happens only when we're fully connected to the life-giving source. And a lot of us, even in this place this morning, that's not how we would describe our life. We would describe our life as going from one thing to another to another, dropping a kid off here, picking a kid up here, doing laundry, doing this, kind of watching Fallon and falling asleep and trying to do it all one more time. Wondering, isn't there something more to this than this sort of mediocrity that I've created around my space? So we go to church hoping it'll change a few things, but it doesn't. We feel a little better because we do it out of habit, but the reality is without our personal lives connected to this life-giving source of Jesus, we will never experience true, full, real life. What we are created for. The Messiah came to give you life. Like joyful, real, abundant life and a promise that outweighs everything we can imagine. The other thing that we know about the vine, Jesus as the true vine, is that the vine connects, right? We learned this all through John as well, but the vine is what uniquely connects believers to believers to believers. It's what uniquely connects churches to churches to churches. The single truth that we have with the church next to us, <coughs> excuse me, and the church on the south down here, 
is that we are connected to the same life source, Jesus. Now, most of us forget that because we're too busy being angry with the church down the street. We don't like the Baptists and Methodists or Presbyterians and Life Church people or whoever, whatever they are. We just, we don't. We don't like the way they dance, don't dance, sing, don't sing. We don't like their version of theology about this. We don't like the fact they didn't greet me when I came in or whatever. We came with all of our discontentment about all these other pieces that are connected to the same life-giving source. And the truth of the matter is that the majority of that is a Western problem. The majority of that is happening in this kind of Christian subculture that we've created. We've created a world of competitive Christianity where we battle over each other's members and attenders by trying to draw those away with cooler, neater, fancier toys. But the reality of church growth in Oklahoma City is that churches typically only grow because they're getting each other's disenchanted members. Just true. Very seldom do you see churches that are growing because they are winning people to Christ through the gospel. The majority, and this is just us being completely transparent, the majority of our church growth has come because you have not liked where you came from. Just haven't. It's too big, too small, too loud, too whatever. Not enough t-shirts, too many t-shirts. They didn't have paninis, whatever. I know there are churches that have paninis. We don't. But most of us, right, fail to remember that the vine actually connects us to every other believer across space and time, and that we are called to have fellowship and joy together. So here's the reality. I've seen this all over the world, right? Like I've had the privilege of traveling 30-something countries doing mission work over the years. I remember we were outside of Ukraine, actually on the, the border of Hungary, and we were doing this little outreach into this gypsy village. And we walked across the border, and as we came across, this family stopped and grabbed our interpreter, our, our translator, and they said, are you all, are you Christians? Are you believers? And we said, Yes. They asked us to come with them, and there was about six of us, and they followed them into this little house, kind of a mud little gypsy house. And there was a young boy, probably eight or nine, and he was incredibly sick. And they asked us to pray for him, just to kneel around his bed and pray for him. And so we laid hands on this kid, and we, we prayed for him. And as we were praying, and they were trying to translate and do all that, we did all that process. Uh, we finished, and the translator was talking to the mom, um, my Ukrainian's rough, and uh, um, she was talking to the mom, and she said, she said, how, you know, how did you know that we were coming, or whatever? She's like, I, I didn't know, <clears throat> but I knew that if God would send Christians, and I've been praying that he would send Christians, that if God would send them, that they would come and pray for my son. And I remember in that whole conversation talking with her, she never once asked me where I came from, like what denomination I was. Like if I was a Presbyterian or a Baptist or whatever, what church it went to. She never asked me the size of our church, any of those things. She just simply longed for someone else that believed in Jesus to come pray for her kid. I walk up and down the city all the time, and I see people constantly, pastors and friends, as soon as we dialogue. It happened to me on Friday, actually, of this week. So what do you do? Oh, I pastor a church. Where? I pastor the church in the city. Oh, where? I go, well, it's across from Cock of the Walk, because everybody knows where that is, right? So, <laughs> it's across from Cock of the Walk. Oh, that's great. Uh, and then the exact next question every single time is, oh, that's cool. How big are y'all? How many services do you have? It comes out across in one of those two ways. And I always say, oh, enough. <laughs> you know, one. 
Why do we ask that? Why do we care? Because it's our measuring stick in Western Christianity for what is healthy and true and right. Sometimes that's correct. But I think what we fail to remember and what I want to point out about the Messiah is that the Messiah came to connect believers from every walk of life, the Jews and the Gentiles, those that were in Ephesus and those that grew up in the heart of Jerusalem, those like Paul who had spent every waking moment trying to be a religious, perfected person, right? And the blind man on the side of the road that was just crying out for Jesus to touch him. The Messiah came and connected every one of those individual hearts. The handicapped cripple and the religious elite all broken down with the same need. The vine, Jesus, connects us. If you look around you, the truth is, is that we're from all different walks of life. I mean, we're from the similar kind of stories in terms of we grew up in the United States, most of us here, whatever. But the truth is, we've all had different experiences. Some of us grew up hating church. Some of us have been hurt. Some of us are broken and sad. Some of us are faking it. And some of us are really joyful. But God connects every single one of us to this singular Messiah. All right? We have so much more in common with believers than we actually have the differences. So the, the, the Messiah has come to give life. Jesus, as the vine, gives life. Jesus, as the, the vine, connects. The next thing we learn is that Jesus, the vine, allows us to bear fruit. What John talks about in here is that the idea is that as a branch, you were created to bear fruit. You were created to have something significant in your life. If you look back at verse 4, he says, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. You can't bear fruit either unless you remain in the vine. So you were created for some specific amazing purpose in which God wants to use you to bear fruit, to do something or be something remarkable that reflects the glory of the vine, right? A branch that doesn't bear fruit is essentially a worthless branch, right? Nobody wants an apple tree that doesn't bear apples. Nobody wants a grapevine that doesn't grow grapes. You were created to do amazing things that give glory back to the vine, you were created to bear fruit, and you cannot bear that fruit on your own, meaning you can't falsify happiness, you can't falsify joy, you can't falsify contentment, you can't falsify any of those things, because at the end of the day, they're not real. The only way that you bear true, real fruit, fruit that is uh, like the, the picture of Scripture tells us, that is patient and kind and good and all of those things that are evidence of the Holy Spirit, the only way that happens is that if you are connected in truth to the vine and that it is a byproduct of someone who is in full life with Jesus. You can't stop it. When you are fully connected to Christ, your life literally blossoms. If you look at yourself right now and you say, I am in the process of manufacturing fruit, what that means is that I am covering up a lot of stuff in my life. I've created some wax figures over here. We dress the right way. We say the right things. We hold hands on our way into church. But underneath all of those things, I'm sad. I'm broken. My marriage isn't working. My kids are falling apart. We're barely holding our financial life together. Whatever those things are. I ask you to look truthfully at your heart and say, am I connected to the source of life? The reality of those things is not that you have bad kids 
or a bad marriage or a bad financial outlook. Those things may be true. But the reality almost always is that we're not connected to the source of life. And not that when we connect to Jesus, all of a sudden he gives us a zillion dollars. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying our outlook about money is different. Our outlook about our children is different and our marriage is different. Things become worth fighting for. When we're connected to life, Jesus, we see things the way that he sees things. No longer is this the driving source of my happiness, but I have a different perspective about money. I have a different perspective about my husband. No longer do I see my wife or my husband with this sort of bitterness or frustration, but when I'm connected to life, I see them through his eyes and it longs for me to, to help that relationship become redeemed. See, the promise of connected to the vine is not instant fix for all your problems, but it means the truth is that you begin to see things differently and you don't have to fake them or manufacture them. Do you know how tiring it is to manufacture these things in your life? I know. I have spent a lot of my time trying to manufacture false pictures because we're afraid of the reality. It's tiring. It's not life-giving. And I can promise you, if you step back every single time, it's because we have not connected our life to the source of life. Trying to do it on your own. And you cannot bear fruit on your own, period. I don't care how hard you try, how many times you wake up at 6 a.m., how many times you go to bed late, how many times you do whatever, how many jobs you work, you will never manufacture real fruit. Take a breath, get on your knees and say, Jesus, I need you. Connect yourself to the source of life. So Jesus says, I am the life, right? We know that. He connects with other believers. And he reminds us that he is the source of all fruit. If your life feels like a daily grind, a struggle, look at your spiritual life. Are you connected to Christ? Is your time in the word, time in prayer? Are you laying out your failures before him? Life doesn't necessarily get easier, but perspective changes and fruit grows. The final thing that we see in here that I just want to point out this morning is this. The reality of these things when they don't happen. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if there's ever been a verse in Scripture I've tried to challenge more. It's, well, there probably isn't one. This is probably the verse in Scripture I've tried to challenge every day of my life with every breath that I have, which is... What can I do apart from Jesus? I can control this situation. I can control this. I can control that. I can handle this. I've got it. I don't necessarily need you all the time. My entire life is spent trying to do things apart from Christ. It's my daily battle with my own Christianity. I know I need Jesus, but I don't always like what that means. And so I try and do it on my own. And for 39 years now, plus a few, just a handful, I fought the Lord daily, trying to do things apart from him. Not because I knew I could, but just because it's my nature. Every day I have to wake up and decide that I'm going to try and die to myself. It's the truth of the gospel, death to self. 
Every day is a wake up and say, Jesus, I can do nothing apart from you. Even this breath that I draw is because of you. If I'm going to love people, it's going to be because you allow me to. If I'm going to see things differently, if I'm going to finish this thing, be a part of this, whatever it is, I can do nothing apart from you because when left up to my own desires and devices, I fail. I fail. If there's ever been a truer verse in Scripture, which they're all true, but if there's ever been a truer one, I don't know it. It's apart from me, you can do nothing. If anything sinks in about what the Messiah came to do, right? That apart from the Messiah, the Jewish people could never get themselves to life. The law was unkeepable. The Messiah came in full knowledge that we could not do it. And so God sent his son to give us true, real, abundant life that if we believe and trust in him, he is for you, goes before you, on behalf of you, in front of you, behind you, and through you. The Messiah has come to give life, to connect us to other believers, to allow us to bear fruit, and to remind us that apart from him, there's nothing. And this morning you've spent much of your life, you reminds me of much of your life trying to do things without him. It's not too late. That's the amazing thing about the gospel is it is never too late. Well, one day, but not right now. It's not too late. Today is the day you can draw breath and say, you get it all. You get it all. The picture that we have of this table, right, this communion table is that. It really is the picture of a God that gave us true, real, and abundant life. A Messiah that came, broke into humanity, knowing full well that we were in desperate need, that there would be no other solution to our sin problem than his own life. And as we saw throughout the entire gospel, Jesus, fully knowing these truths, walked this earth, was betrayed, humiliated, beaten, handed over, and crucified. A Messiah that came to give life. On that very night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same manner, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Christ until he comes again. This table is not a table of habit. It's a table of truth and a table of life. It's not something that we enter into lightly, but it's something that Paul even tells us that we should examine our hearts and understand exactly what Jesus did and that apart from him, we can do nothing. This morning, as always, we take communion by means of intinction, which means as you come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and you can eat it. We don't use ushers. We just ask you as you feel led or called by the Lord to just come down or there'll be a station in the back and Share that and then remain standing as we close our time and worship together. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward this morning.